my whole perspective has changed, you know. I'm getting into the soft jazz. I'm realizing that's not so bad. Um, do you remember George, where, Have you heard George Winston? He's pretty good. Oh, do you remember God. where we told you the cyanide pills were? Do you remember where we put them? And you could take You don't them. know what it's like to go away and just clear your head for a week. I'm going to do that. So, Kirk, basically your entire perspective on everything has changed. Absolutely. You know, I realize that during our last podcast, I may have said some things about Steve Perry and Journey that maybe, you know, if I doubt that he listens to us, he would be more than welcome to if he had the time or inclination. I wouldn't expect him to, but they may have offended him. They may have offended his family, his friends, more importantly, his fans. I want to say that I was completely wrong to do that. I apologize to Steve Perry and Journey uh, okay. For anything I said that may have been construed as being offensive, this was before I had discovered my aloha spirit. I'm a new man now, and um, I just, I personally won't stop believing as a you result want, of this transformation. So you want to just say a big mahalo to all of them? Mahalo, or as Hunter S. Thompson would say, mahalo ice cubes. I am now <laughs> worried that Kirk was replaced by some kind of clone while he was in Hawaii. Tonight on Media Loper Bebop, death and social media. What happens when that guy whose death you learned about on Twitter isn't actually, you know, dead? Also, when is fair use no use at all? And a brand new segment entitled, You're an Idiot. All that, and I've got fucked up TV on the radio and Fleet Foxes in my mix. On Media Loper Bebop Episode 9, Kirk's New Aloha Spirit. Welcome again, everybody. I'm Jim Connolly, and I'd like to give a special shout out to all the listeners of the Armed Forces Network. With me, as always, are Tim Gaskell. I'm here with a new microphone. And the tanned, rested, and jet-lagged Kirk Biglioni. Mahalo, ice cubes. <laughs> Kirk, yesterday you flew back from Hawaii. Yes, I did. How are your arms feeling? <laughs> Quite relaxed, actually. Kind of like your head. <laughs> <laughs> it was more of a glide. <laughs> From Michael Jackson to Peter Falk, lately these days when somebody dies, I find out about it on the Twitter. Of course, given the nature of the people I follow on Twitter, I always try to verify any death report that isn't from CNN breaking news or some other actual news source on the web. Occasionally, though, even that strategy goes wrong, as Tim Gaskell will tell us. Take it away, Tim. Okay, so the other day, I got up and I looked on my Facebook feed and the uh, one, of my, one of my feeds are from Hidden Los Angeles. Um, they reported that uh, Jack Sheldon, the famous trumpet player, singer, raconteur, comedian, etc., uh, had died, had passed away and died at age 79. And so I looked it up online. I found a, an actual obit on jazztimes.com. They confirmed it. And I looked elsewhere. I looked on Twitter. I started seeing people saying, RIP, Jack Sheldon, etc. And so, you know, we, we all kind of just repeated the line, you know, R.I.P. Jack Sheldon. Later, after a couple hours, I, I, so I went online. I wanted to find a, you know, a, a neutral source, somebody else that might confirm this, and I could not find one. 
And I kept looking and looking, and then finally somebody came back and said, actually, they spoke to his wife. She's confirmed uh, he's not, in fact, dead, very much alive. I heard one rumor that he'd had a stroke. That wasn't even confirmed. And then it turns out Jack is still alive, and maybe someday we can go see him at the Jazz Bakery or somewhere like that, because he's he's one of my favorites. He was on the Merv Griffin show, kind of the band leader, featured player for many years, back in the 80s, 90s, maybe even the 70s. And, um, you know, he was, he was, he was a lot of fun. He's kind of the last of an old breed. A lot of people know him as the voice on Schoolhouse Rock. Uh, I'm just a bill. bill. He's only a bill. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in So anyway, that, the, it com- contrasted greatly with what we reported on one of our first podcasts was about the, the way the Bin Laden thing was reported and how that was spot on and very timely and just, you know, very, a- very accurate as it turns so out. So I have a quick question. Yes. How long was he dead for? He was dead for about an hour. So he's going to write a great book about his near-death experience. Yeah, and well, what this does is brings... An hour in the beyond. Well, here's here's the thing with the whole internet death rumor thing. You have to divide it into two categories. The people that are likely to die and that you would believe it, and the people who it's just kind of random, i.e. the Kanye West, the, the Charlie Sheen, Miley Cyrus, Adam Sandler, Jaden Smith, you know, they're all these... There are all these rumors that have come up over the last few years that they are dead. But those, you know, would obviously you have to fact check. You got to go and look for another source. Don't just believe. But Jack Sheldon, who's seventy nine, he's a jazz. Wait, did you say don't don't just believe? Sorry, sorry, Steve. I won't stop believing. Kurt, don't stop believing. Biglione in his uh, smells like Aloha spirit. Um, uh, But anyway. So anyway, that, that's where I see it. I see it. The, the whole internet death rumor comes down to two things. is likely versus unlikely. Jack Sheldon was likely because he was older. He had a history of uh, drinking and co- heavy cocaine use. You think, well, the body's going to give out at some point. It seems likely. Er- therefore, you're going to believe it. And uh, you had to stop believe, just stop believing for that one. I think we need some kind of code, some kind of system for automatic verification, because this sort of thing is just going to be exploited more and more. I mean, Abe Vigoda, he's next, right? Right. 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 No one ever knows whether he's dead or alive. There's actually a website devoted to Abe Vigoda telling you whether he's dead or alive. I'm looking for it right now. Yeah. He, He falls into the likely the likely category you're likely to believe it you're likely to get sucked in the other ones like charlie sheen you you're only likely to believe it because he you know because of his debauched lifestyle okay so this is the way it should be if you go to abevagoda.com you see a picture of abe vagoda with his status abe vagoda is alive (laughs) (laughs) and then has the date and time and this is the official word so if every celebrity had, you know, the first page on their domain name with their status. But wait a second. The, 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 stat, the, the status is just a server call. All it's doing is checking the time of the server. So he could have died 10 minutes ago and the page not been updated yet. This is, this is, this is the responsibility that the loved ones have right. to their celebrity relatives is to update the status as quickly as possible. 
I think what this calls for is celebrity roll call every morning. <laughs> Everybody has to check in. So, I mean, there there is a larger issue here, and that's the the the. Oh, did we lose somebody? Abe Vigoda will never die. We lost Tim. Oh, good. I, I see him right here. No, I've got. There is a problem with Tim, this call. Tim has passed away. Yes, Tim has died. Oh God! You heard it here first on Media for Bebop. Tim Gaskell has passed away. You know why? Twitter. He stopped believing. <laughs> Hello. We thought you were dead. We had reported that you were dead. Did you um? Did He's you ask back? Him? It's a miracle. Oh my I'm God! Back. He lives. No, no, no. It's once again, it's technology. And social media fooling us into believing that people are dead when they're actually alive. Did you wow. see all the tweets that were going through Twitter announcing your death, Tim? That was scary. I saw like 20 of them. This is Jim Connolly with a musical moment to die for. How do you come back from something that shattered your entire world? That was the question that New Order tried to answer with the original version of their Titanic 1981 12-inch single, Ceremony. Record geeks will know this one as the one with the green cover. Bigger and deeper in every way than the later take, this version of Ceremony exists simultaneously as an elegy for the band they were and a signpost for the band they were going to become. So it builds and builds and builds until it collapses into a waterfall of liquid crystal guitars, Bernard Sumner repeating, forever. Joy Division would have gone in the dance-oriented direction that New Order eventually took, or maybe they would have gotten even darker, or both. It's impossible to know what they would have done with Ian Curtis still alive. What we do know is that this song already existed in demo form and obviously had the potential to be great. And because of that, New Order was, for a moment, suspended in space and time. A band possibly already forever trapped by their past, but also a band with obvious ideas about their future. And they responded to that suspension by packing so much sadness, tribute, and rebirth into these four minutes that sometimes I think it might be the greatest thing that anybody has ever recorded. Forever. That was New Order with Ceremony, a song that contains a musical moment to die for. That musical moment, by the way, is a perfect example of something that should be covered under the concept of fair use, whereupon I'm taking an existing work of art, New Order Ceremony, and using it to comment on it. But, as Kirk will tell us, having that right and being able to exercise it are two totally different things. Yes, yeah, so there's an interesting controversy that was just revealed um, in a blog post uh, this week by, I'm going to get his name wrong, Andy Bayo. B-A-I-O. He's a writer and tech entrepreneur. He's one of the co-creators of Kickstart, which is a great service if you're trying to raise some cash for a uh, creative pro- project that you know may not otherwise be 
commercially viable. Color Me Obsessed was funded by Kickstarter. Yeah, you can crowdsource the financing Mm -hmm. up to a point. So um, I missed this originally when it came out. I guess it was in August of 2009 he released this project called Kind of Bloop, (laughs) which is a tribute to Kind of Blue uh, as recorded as 8-bit video game music. So he re-recorded, he got composers who, chiptune composers, who work in this medium of 8-bit music, 8-bit audio, using the, you know, 8-bit digital sound that you would have had in a video game from the 1980s, (laughs) and re-recorded all of the songs from Kind of Blue as a tribute. So at the time, he was very sensitive to the, the rights requirements, and he really went out of his way to clear the rights with the publishing company so that he had the ability to re-record these songs without getting into any trouble. And he, um, he hired five different composers. Each composer took a song from the album and did original renditions. And uh, he released this in you know, two, August of 2009. And um, it was a minor hit for people who are into this kind of thing. And um, a few months later, he was contacted by a <laughs> lawyer who um, was representing the photographer who took the original album picture that's used on the original album cover of Kind of Blue. The cover that he used in you know, keeping with the concept of the album was a highly pixelated rendition of that iconic photo of Miles Davis playing the trumpet on the cover of Kind of Blue. Clearly not the original, clearly a derivative work or a transformational work actually. It's not the original. It's not representing itself as the original. Um, didn't matter. The photographer didn't want his work associated with this project at all. And uh, it wasn't just a matter of saying, please take my photo or something that looks remotely like my photo off of this work. It's, it was a, it's too late. We're going to start talking about $150,000 for each infringement. <laughs> Plus $25,000 for a DMCA violation. Sounds reasonable. Um, and so all of these negotiations went on in private. This was something that didn't, you know, that was going on most of last year. He was dealing with uh, his lawyers, were dealing with this photographer's lawyers, and they finally settled out of court towards the end of last year, and he's just now blogging about what happened. Uh, one of the only terms that he wouldn't compromise on was his ability to tell the full story. And he's done that now. And in this blog post that we need to link to... I will. He shows, you know, some other transformational uses of album covers and movie posters and video games. And then there's the famous Shepard Ferry... um, uh, Hope poster. Obama Hope Hope poster. Um, And then at the end, he does something really interesting. He takes... he He has 12 different images of Kind of Blue, which he can use as fair use because it's not on a product. He's using it for criticism or he's using it for 
you know, he, he's making the point about the question of fair use. And he starts with something that is, is fairly close to the um, image that he used on kind of bloop. And then each one is... Uh, pixelated more and more and more. Successively pixelated more and more and more until you get to the final one. And it's just four squares using four colors from the palette of the original photo. And the question is, where do you draw the line? Which, which one of these becomes fair use? Or are any of them fair use? Um, and it really is, you know, what, what his whole story points out is this problem we have with the system is we think we have this thing called fair use. It was introduced, and it was introduced roughly in 1976 as something that actually became part of the copyright law in the United States. It's different around the world. The UK, for example, doesn't really have something like fair use. So we think we have the ability to use images and sound clips um, in certain ways, but it's not, the standard of use is not so strictly defined that you can ever be safe. Uh, Lawrence Lessig, famous copyright um, professor, um, has said that fair use is the right to hire a lawyer. And this story perfectly illustrates that fact, is you know, when it comes down to it, you may think that you have a fair use right, and you may have had a fair use right, but it really comes down to, you know, do you have, <laughs> do you have the money to pay for the legal proceedings in a year or multi-year uh, court case? Uh, and the, the producer in this case, the producer of Kind of Bloop, has said that he's not admitting that he did anything wrong. He believes that it was fair use, but $32,500 was the cheapest way to make the problem go away. I can't even tell you how crazy this drives me because I really, I mean, I believe just in general that art proceeds from previous art. So, and sometimes it's, it's just, you know, just a slight variation. Sometimes it's, you know, you steal a riff or you, you steal an idea or you steal a line or, you know, you do a parody and then that goes off in another direction. So to, for it to become a rich person's game just, just makes me crazy. Well, who owns yeah. most of the copyrights? Corporations. Cor corporations. And yet when we have these discussions about protecting the copyright, you know, the piracy discussion, is the biggest one. Um, it's always framed in terms of we have to protect the artists. Right. But the artists usually aren't the ones who are controlling right. the copyright. Although in this case, the artist, the photographer, was the one who was uh, controlling the copyright. And this whole, uh, there's this other kind of underlying story of what happened when, when uh, the producer of Kind of Bloop posted his story explaining what had happened. It became very ugly for the photographer on his Facebook page and on his blog. And, you know, he's very wealthy at this point. He lives in like a 102-room mansion in New York City that's worth $36 million. Um, but he bought it in 1965 for 102000 Okay, so he made a good investment. So I wonder if anybody's gone back and take and found photographs that other people did of other jazz artists where even trumpet players it doesn't have to be trumpet players where it's this angle and this this distance and it's essentially the same type of shot. I mean, I feel like this photograph became iconic not because the photograph itself is iconic, but because the album became iconic. 
So it don't yeah. the photograph itself isn't that original piece of art. So I can I can see why people got pissed off about the the photographer doing this because it's not that original work of art in and of itself. Here's another problem with everything that's this whole story is it illustrates also selective enforcement. The right. problem of selective enforcement. Uh, New York Times ran an article today on music in the cloud. And uh, there was an illustration that ran with the article that showed a consumer and their albums floating around in a cloud. <laughs> and one of those albums floating around was kind of blue. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And and the guy who's who settled um, contacted the New York Times staff artist to see if it was licensed, and it wasn't. And then the similar thing, the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, we here at Media Loper had an almost identical problem in uh, like four years ago. Oh, right. Jim did, that's what I like, Bob Dylan. Imagine Jim writing about Bob Dylan. And you used a photo from the Manchester gig. And the, photogra the photographer who took the photo sent us this email. Let me see if I can find it. Mark Macon. I would appreciate it if you would not use my copyrighted image of Bob Dylan in Manchester, 1966. Just because you find images on the internet does not mean they are free for anybody's use. I suspect you're part of the generation that believes all media should be free, as long as it's not your own media. <laughs> wow. I went back to tell him it was worse than he imagined. All of our content was Creative Commons licensed. <laughs> and then we replaced the image with my artist's rendering. But now that I think about it, he, he could have come back to us after that and said, please take down the drawing of my photograph. Mm. No, because that's parody. What are you saying about my illustration, Tim? Um, well, only because I, I, I didn't get the sense that your illustration had the, uh, the full three-dimensional kind of look. It kind of, um, it, it had the look and feel of a, um, how do I say this? Child's drawing? Kind of one, not one of your best drawings. I, was, I mean, I but was, good. It I represented the band, but. I was in a hurry to avoid being sued. Right. And that, it comes across. So, but theoretically, once again, wouldn't using that photograph count as fair use? You would think. I'm talking about Bob Dylan. I'm commenting about Bob Dylan. I'm creating something, some new commentary, some and you're new not work. profiting off this. I'm not profiting off, well. Uh, creating new work, new work about Dylan. So why is he using that photograph? And you might have been able to get to that point where you would have been able to use that photo without, you know, any restraint because it is fair use. But you might have had to go through a protracted legal battle to get there. So what it comes down to is, you know, it would, be, it would be great if there were a more rigorous standard that you could go through, like a checklist, to absolutely determine whether or not something was fair use. To get there, we have to change the copyright law, and unfortunately, every time we change the copyright law, it gets worse. The other thing that we need is an easier way to license things. Yes. Right. Some sort of registry. And there are some companies that are working on this, but, you know, realistically... Not so much. Uh, well, it's it's hopeful in some ways, um, but there are a lot of copyright holders that would essentially price the license in such a way that you could never use it. And speaking of legal issues, this podcast is a presentation of Media Loper Bebop. 
any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of the commissioner of Media Loper Bebop is prohibited. Um, Who's the commissioner this year? Our commissioner is Gordon Loper, as he always has been. I used to have a problem with Gordon Loper, but, you know, lately I think he's not so bad. Well, he's trying, he's trying, to, he's trying to help us out here with, with I this can legal. Now, I can see his side now. I've not met him. None of us have met him. We've only ever, ever had any uh, communication from him through emails and direct tweets and weird, weird, Sometimes weird. Sometimes he'll leave an angry voicemail for me where he's just shouting and then he slams the phone down. Exactly. Yeah. I can't even tell what he's talking about half the time because of his accent. When we started Media Loper Bebop, back in the days when Osama Bin Laden was still alive, part of the reason we did it was that we've always had these conversations going back to the mid-80s. And occasionally over the years, we've come across topics where one of us has something that he either loves or hates, and that love or hate is absolutely incomprehensible to the other two. That's the impetus for our brand new segment, You're an Idiot, where two of us try to convince the third of the error of his ways. I thought the name was You're an Idiot Stupid. <laughs> Or is it you're a stupid idiot? You're a stupid idiot? You're a big Either way, that's not very idiot. aloha. To that's Tim and true. I, the Smiths are an all-time great band. A beautiful mix of great guitar riffs, witty lyrics, and one of the most unique singers in all of pop history. But Kirk has always hated the Smiths. In fact, that hatred is one of our longest and most cherished running jokes. And tonight, Tim and I are going to change his mind. So Kirk, honestly, what is up with your hatred of the Smiths? You know... I used to hate the Smiths. <laughs> See, I knew you were going to go there, and I'm not buying it. <laughs> so, Johnny Marr is, you know, I have nothing bad to say about the man. He's yeah. a great, great guitar player. Yes. Some of their songs were okay. I just really think they needed two things <laughs> that would have made them better than they already are, which is a different singer and a different lyricist. <laughs> Some of my best favorite artists are not good singers, but they write great songs and they make you feel it. They make you believe it. You don't stop believing. So okay. there's like, so, you know, it's like Tom Waits, Shane McGowan, Joe Strummer, Steve Perry. I think you know what I'm talking about. These are guys that, even though they're not the best singers, they write, great, they, write, they write great songs, and, um, and you just love their music. The problem with the Smiths was Morrissey wasn't a good singer, and he didn't write good songs. And on top of it, you didn't like him. But now I realize the error of my ways. I have sympathy for Morrissey. He can't help it. He's that way. He was just born that way. <laughs> He's got a bad attitude. He doesn't have the aloha spirit. What are you going to do? It's all good. As they say, it's all good. I said, Charles, don't you ever crave to appear on the front of the Daily Mail the rest in your mother's bride and veil. And so I 
So if we want, if, if Tim and I wanted to um, make the Queen is Dead a media lo- inductee to the Media Loper Great Albums Hall of Fame, you would be able to say nice things about it. I'd have to listen to it again. <laughs> mm. <clears throat> I think I, he- you know I'll check my schedule and see if I can work that in. I, I, I can see where you started off with the anti-Morrissey thing back in 1984, because, yeah, he did seem to be a bit of a whiny bitch on that first album. No question. I decree today that life is simply taking and not giving England is mine. It owes me a living. But by the yeah. time of The Queen is Dead, he no, had... I, hang on. I'd like to pull back here because okay. I think you're going off on a drag. Okay. <clears throat> to me... They kind of they crystallized everything with Meet His Murder. I thought that you know the album is very strong. I I think it's a great album. To me, that is a stronger album than the first one. Personally, it's produced better. The sings better. The songs are strong. I like that album a lot. The Queen is Dead, obviously, greatest one of the greatest albums ever. But to me, they they totally they, there was a progression from each album with a then it's kind of a tapering off with Strange Ways. I like the, was it the 40-year anniversary edition with the bonus material, Meet His Murder, Tasty, Tasty Murder? (laughs) (laughs) That was good. It came with some McDonald's coupons. I mean, I, I honestly don't see how you could you could l- be a fan of guitar rock and not get How Soon Is Now, regardless of who was singing. Like, that's just like a, a quintessential... Morrissey always stopped me. I'm serious when I think, when I believe that if they had a different singer, they would have gone far. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, they went far. And, and it's not like Morrissey has gotten... <laughs> better with age i mean he's become a, a, a cranky old crackpot basically which by the way should be right up your alley right Take me so maybe we can compromise get steve perry to sing for <laughs> hey i wouldn't rule it out that would be interesting i would listen to that I didn't say I would like it. I would listen to it. I will admit, I believe that Morrissey is special. He is special. And I do think he needs some help. Well, yeah. And unfortunately, the Smiths, the Smiths could do one of those reunions without key members and come out better for it. Well, without a key member. I don't Who think... Would, let's think about... Let's, let's, let's find ways to make this better. This is what we do with the Aloha spirit. <laughs> think of all the people who could fill in for Morrissey and become the new lead singer of the Reformed Smiths. Ian Brown of the Stone Roses. Sounds good to me. Tom Waits. Tom Waits. <laughs> well, that would be kind of weird, but... Probably better than Steve Perry. Shane McGowan. Shane McGowan. <laughs> I feel like that if we had gotten this topic a week ago, before Kirk went to Hawaii and got the Aloha spirit, we would get a much, much stronger argument. Let's try some time travel. (laughs) 
can you go back to where you were just a week ago and 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 get back to that place where you made the joke about seeing Journey and the Smiths in concert in hell? <laughs> I mean, that was just a week ago. I mean, who's opening, by the way? Yeah, which which band was? Oh, I, I would say the Smiths were probably opening. You know, who I'd like to see sing with the Smiths. Who? Sarah Palin. Hmm. <laughs> that'd be awesome. She comes out. I bet, I bet she can sing. Oh, with that voice? Yeah, of course. It must be a great singing voice. Uh, guys, I'm Officer Palin now. I'm on to Michelle Bachman. <laughs> oh, you know, she could sing for the reformed Bachman Turner Overdrive. <laughs> exactly. That would be great. <laughs> she would be taking care of business. Ooh. I'm going to let that one ride. <laughs> now it's time for In the Mix. This week, it's my turn to present three songs from my mix. But first, a little inside baseball. I have two different current mixes right now. A short one that's about four or 500 songs that I listen to at work, and a longer one that's about 1,000 to 1,200 songs that I have at home. The one at work is more about getting to know new music for a couple of months. The longer one includes things that I, I might have had for four or five months, or even older albums that I know really well, but have been reissued, or maybe anything else I just want to put into the mix. So I have two different levels of listening to, to new, and two different places to listen to new music. So first off for me is a song that just might win 2011, Queen of Hearts by Fucked Up from the new rock opera, David Comes to Life. What I love about David Comes to Life is not just that it might be a zen arcade for a new millennium or generation or whatever, but how guitarist Mike Halichuk tosses riffs, licks, and hooks from 30 years of post-punk into a huge maelstrom, yet it still feels like something fresh and new. I played this for you the other night, Tim. What'd you think? Tim? Did we lose Tim again? Tim, are you dead? Uh, no, I'm still alive. Okay. Hang on. Let me, wait, wait, let me just double check. Uh, yeah. Tim Comes to Life. Um, yeah, I, I love the sound of this. He, um, the production value is better than Husker Du even, and um, which isn't hard. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I love the the maelstrom of uh, noise and everything. It, it came together really well. I, I did enjoy it. It's too soon to tell if David Comes to Life is going to join my personal pantheon of great guitar albums. You know, things like Layla, Marquee Moon, Daydream Nation, Octune Baby, and Separation Sunday. But all I know is that when I hear bits like this lead from the song under my nose, I laugh out loud with pleasure and recognition. My next song is from TV on the Radio, the Brooklyn-based art funk band. This song is called Repetition from their new album, Nine Types of Light. My repetition is this, my repetition. 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 My repetition. My repetition. 
I'll freely admit that I didn't get into the first two TV on the radio albums at all. But with 2008's Dear Science, either my ears had changed to get what they were doing, or they had perfected their unique combination of art and funk. Nine Types of Light is far more subtle than Dear Science, but spend a couple months with it, and it's as good as anything out there. A band that I think I should really love, but I'm still on the fence about, is Fleet Foxes. For me, they worry more about their harmonies than their actual songs. That said, when they put it all together, it's amazing, like on this song Lorelei from their new Helplessness Blues album. it might be something as simple as how they steal, or fairly use as the case may be, the rhythm and some of the melody and hell even the phrasing of Bob Dylan's fourth time around. But it doesn't matter because this is the first time I truly get what all the raving is about. Lorelei, you say? Lorelei. Like the stick song. Cover up the stick song. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I have heard this. Um, yeah, Fleet Foxes again. I'm kind of on the on the fence about it. I know their first album, I think. Did it win the Paz and Jop? poll or it's it's in the top five or pitchfork or it was one of those critics polls one of those critics polls and you know it's kind of yeah i agree i there are a couple of songs that i really like but i i can't sit through a whole album it's just not made you know it, it's just kind of it's a bit too a bit too much a bit too um melodic in your face <laughs> melodic melodic is that a word melodic in your face yes it's a specific type of melodic Yes. I understand what you're talking about. Some kind of melody is organic, and it's kind of it's it's easy. It flows from the song, but and then sometimes it's composed and it's layered, and it's so so much. Um, I think the equivalent to me was there was a British band back in the '90s called the Boo Radleys, who to me suffered from that same fate. They tried to be way too clever for what they were rather than just kind of come out and do their songs and play and everything and it just i just thought their music suffered because of it they had the talent and the skill but they just didn't they they put way too much effort into the into the intricacies and the layering and everything and it didn't make for a great listening experience oh sir just one more thing really quick that's the voice, of course, of Peter Falk, who passed away this week, and who, for me, played one of my all-time favorite TV characters, Lieutenant Columbo. I was always really happy when the NBC mystery movie was a Columbo. Anyways, one more thing. Tim. One more thing. Okay. <clears throat> Last weekend, went to Santa Inez Valley for some wine tasting, and just a couple of little things. First of all, Santa Inez is basically, it's the, it's the Indian reservation winery equivalent to kind of lost like Sonoma and Napa being the Vegas, I guess. And that means you the payoffs aren't as good. The <laughs> wines aren't as good. Uh, the setting's nice, but you, you just, you, you, I don't know what it is. They, they've been making, there are tons of wineries there. They've been making wine for a long time, but I, I have yet to go. I've been there at least half a dozen times. I have yet to like buy a wine and bring it back. I was so impressed with it. Um, they're not horrible, except with the following exception. We went to the Fess Parker Winery. I did not enjoy it. Um, this is the one, if you saw the movie Sideways, which I'm guessing Kirk did and Jim didn't. No, I did also. Oh, Jim did as well. 
Um, so when you went there, did you ask them about F Troop? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or Daniel Boone. Didn't he play Daniel Boone also? Daniel Boone, no, he was da- Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. And um, in the movie Sideways, I think it's called Frass Canyon. Uh, that's the name of it. And they make fun of it, and that's when he pours the wine uh, on his head, I think. And it's the, the wine there, basically what I, what happened was we you you now pay for the tastings. It's about 8 to $10, depending on where you go. And you get about uh, 8 to 10 different wines to taste. Every one of these, except for the whites, I um, I ended up pouring out. They only give you like a couple ounces or an ounce per tasting, and I ended up pouring out most of their reds. And that, to me, it's like how I you know I never pour out a, a, a red, and I found myself pouring this all out. My brother he drank it all and he felt horrible later on, and I said I think what saved me is I poured it out. So. Um, which, bro- which, which, which brother may, was made sick by wine? Tyson. Oh, okay. Brass Canyon, i.e. Fest Parker. If you're going to San Inez, I might give it a miss. It's a nice, it's a lovely uh, place and everything, but uh, the wine, they're kind of in your face about it, and the wines are in your face, and they're just not great. And uh, Sideways was correct in mocking it. One more thing, Kirk. I'm sorry to report Coco Crisp has shaved his head. Oh, no. And so ends the Coco Crisp Afro watch. That's terrible. Wow. Yep. I, I got to sit down. Aren't you already sitting down? Oh, yeah, I am. I, but I was just so shocked by the news. I, I didn't know where I was. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should, I should have warned you. <laughs> That's awful. It is. But how, is, how are his numbers? Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. One more thing. Last Friday, the state of New York legalized gay marriage, the most populous state in the union to do so. So all I can say is, good job, New York. Baby steps, true. But I'm convinced that within our lifetimes, it won't be gay marriage or straight marriage, but just marriage. And that does it for episode nine of Media Loper Bebop, Kirk's new Aloha Spirit. As always, my thanks to Tim Gaskell. Thank you for having me. And Kirk Biglioni. Mahalo, Ice Cubes. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening to the part of the podcast where I thank you for listening to this part of the podcast. I'm Jim Connolly, and on behalf of Kirk and Tim, we'll catch you next week. Same Bebop time, same Bebop channel. Whatever time and channel that is. Hush. <laughs>